Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. And I'm here as always with my colleague, my co-host, and my friend. They're not three C's. I need to change the friend to something that is... Comrade? That's too much. Compatriot? Getting closer. Okay. I don't know what it would be. We need more three C's. My kin? That's a K. That's a K. But it still has the... Yeah. Or you change the two C's to two F's. My, I don't know, (laughs) fraternal order of... You're testing my thesauric ability You're here. the writer. Anyway, it's Ross Ferguson. Yeah, How are you? It's me. I'm good. <laughs> Other than throwing me some brain teasers yeah, first thing in the morning. First thing in the morning, exactly. <laughs> hey, I have a random question for you. Okay, I like random questions. It's a mailbag episode. Uh, so. yep. You like movies? We always talk about movies. Okay. We talk about reviews for movies. I do, yeah. Uh, what is your favorite movie snap? Oh, that's a great question. I'm a big Reese's Pieces guy. Oh, no. I love Reese's Pieces. Yeah. If I'm not having popcorn, and these days I don't have a whole lot of popcorn. Actually, these days I don't have a whole lot of Reese's Pieces. But when I'm buying candy at the theater, for a while, I went through a Sour Patch Kids phase. Okay. I did Sour Patch Kids for probably a couple years, but I'm back on the Reese's Pieces. Classic. Yeah. Okay. What about you? I like the kind of pick and mix type. Do you have that here? I don't know what that means. Where oh. you have loads of rows of candy, and then you oh. get a bag, and then you take different things. Yeah, we don't have that at the theater, but okay. they have it other places. So yeah. we like have candy stores. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> candy stores. You yeah, can do that, but you can do that in the UK <laughs> at theaters. Oh. Um, so I like chocolate raisins. Okay, they always go down well. I like anything sour. So just anything water, sour watermelon, sour, yeah, um, yeah. sour patch kids. When we went to the theater a while ago, I had a pizza. So that, <laughs> I what I realized was, that's pretty cool. Hey, you know what I like? Pizza. I have, I mean, I maybe have one every couple of years, but I like movie theater hot dogs. Nope. I do. I like the hot dog. <laughs> Becky always just like, you know, that thing has been there for, yep. it's like a gas station hot dog. Yep. But people probably eat gas station hot dogs more often hey, than movie theater hot dogs. If it rolls around the public, I don't want to eat it. <laughs> you know, I'm just I can't eat Sour Patch Kids at the theater anymore because Beck says it's too noisy. She can hear me like... <laughs> you know, smacking. I won't do the ASMR yeah. thing on here. Okay, but, so good to, good to know. But Reese's uh, Pieces, man. Yeah, and Miriam likes popcorn. I hate popcorn. So. Really? Yeah. Man, I, it's, it's the popcorn. feeling on your teeth. I want the fresh. What I hate is at our local theater, they pre-pop a bunch, and then they keep it like they've got all the tubs out. And mm-hmm. who knows how long the tubs have been sitting there. And they have a little heating lamp. But it's not the same as the popcorn that just got popped that they yeah. scoop and put into the tub for you. Don't. Don't pre-tub the popcorn, so, people. I know that you don't like to say, hey, can we not go to that restaurant because I'm trying to eat well, and that's <laughs> awkward. Yeah. Do you feel awkward going up going, I don't want that popcorn. Make it fresh. Would you no, do that? No, I just, I just take what they oh, give me. Oh, no. Yeah. So you, we you would ask for I, it? I would definitely ask. Oh, if, wow. if that was me, I'd be saying, no, I don't Especially want this stuff. Especially because you're paying 15 bucks for it or whatever well, it is, you know? Probably more than that. Generally, what I would do is I would go with somebody else, get them to pay, and also point out that I would like the fresh stuff. <laughs> but that's just me. That's, that's the Scottish part. Man, at the theater in Vermont that we used to go to, they had a big garbage bag of popcorn. It's like it's been oh, pre-popped could, for yeah. multiple, like it's two day old, and they would get this garbage bag out, and they're scooping popcorn oh, out of no, this no, big no. clear bag. It was the worst. So. It is a mailbag episode. Mailbag. I don't see any questions about movies, but y'all <laughs> could send questions in about movies because I would throw them in every now and again. We put out on Twitter, Facebook, and other places a call for questions, and you guys have turned in some good ones. In fact, I had to turn down some good ones as well. Let me just give you a little pro tip. Sometimes if we don't do your question, 
It could just be for time, space, and mm-hmm. things we're prioritizing, or it could be that it's somewhat redundant to other things we talked about. But sometimes I turn down questions because they're just too broad. Yeah. Like we're looking to do a few minutes per question. You know, one fellow this last time around, he wanted us to talk about ethics. And like there was not a specific question. No. And it's a very valuable subject, but like I don't know how to talk for no. three minutes on on ethics. Give yeah. us a specific just give us a ethical sentence. quandary yep. or what do we think about a particular issue or something like that? That is how you get your question mm. on here. I got a couple of questions about preaching mm. from two different folks that I thought we would kind of put together and talk about preaching just for a little bit. Justin on Twitter says, how do you develop students into preachers? I assume he means, I read this as youth ministry students, like youth people in the youth group. Mm. But did you think this just meant I just read this as students any student, student, as in yeah. a young guy learning. Yeah. How um, would you develop him into preacher? Yeah. I mean, that's a big question too. And it yep. could I mean it could fill a whole episode. But apart from the requisite training you want to give them, which is you're going to teach them what preaching is, you know, biblically, you're going to teach them how to preach, how to prepare a sermon. And we're, that's the next question we have. We'll get to shortly, et cetera, et cetera. The way that you develop is by giving people opportunities to preach. Yep. Like there's yep. no, apart from like, you've got them figuring out how to do the blueprint, how to lay out the architecture, et cetera, et cetera. For someone to develop as a preacher, they need reps. Yep. So it, it may not be you can put them up on a Sunday morning, but although I guess in some occasions you could do that, but give them as many opportunities to be up in front of people delivering prepared material as mm-hmm. possible. Sunday school classes, youth group meetings, you know, college group meetings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday yep. evening. Whenever you have these alternative opportunities, give people time because nobody gets good at preaching unless they can do it yeah. a lot. Yep. I've put that down, regular practice. If you can't do it within your own church, maybe think about pulpit supply. Yeah. You know, here oh, at the good. seminary, we have so many churches asking us to to help them with covering sermons. And it's okay to say, hey, I'm a young guy. I, I haven't done a lot of preaching experience. If you'd be patient with me, I would love to come and help you out. So I think it's really important if you can't find it in your own church, and I'm not meaning like it's just more you can find one every eight months, maybe think about pulpit supply. The other thing I would say is mentor them beyond the book and the actually how to do the sermon. So one of the things that I found helpful is that when guys, and I, I've not, I'm now trying to do this, when guys show me their whole process, and I know we're going to answer this question in a minute, but they talk me through, hey, this is how I went to the sermon. They talk me through how they feel before the sermon. I hear the sermon and then they debrief and say, hey, I didn't feel like that when, how did you feel it? And one of the things I've found is now when I do pulpit supply, I try to take a student from Midwestern Seminary with me and on the journey to the church, I'll talk them through what I'm trying to do. They'll get to hear the sermon and all the way back, I'll go, well, how do you think that went? Do you think that landed well? Well, I wasn't sure about this. And you begin to mentor people through the process, which means if you're the person that is developing students into preachers, you need to be pretty open. So when you're struggling, when you're finding it difficult, I remember I said to one student, hey, I put that bit in. I don't think I should have said that. I'm kind of feeling back, like I want to backtrack that. The student was like, no, I think that worked really well. I'm saying, okay, well, when you preach, sometimes you're going to feel this. You're going to feel like you didn't do the right job. So I think one, giving them regular practice, but two, giving them regular opportunities for them to see the whole process and also feed back into that. Be humble as the teacher to say, well, what did you think? Yeah. Yeah. And I think good constructive, you know, training as well, being able to listen and give them feedback on their messages. And at, in our residency, we do two preaching labs, which is, you know, it's not as intense or as consistent 
as it would be for someone who's preaching every week and that sort of thing. But it's a way of sort of gauging development and giving, you know, substantive feedback on the guys preaching mm-hmm. uh, as well. Now, Jared on Twitter, and this is not me talking about myself, it's another <laughs> fellow named Jared. He asks, how do you prepare a sermon? Mm-hmm. And this question puzzles me because I'm trying to think, how do I answer this question in a very concise, yes. <laughs> concise way? How do you prepare a sermon? Very big question. Entire books have been written about sermon preparation, and lots can be said about it. I'll just say two or three things. You begin with the text. Even if you're preaching a topic, I think you begin with the text. I think the biblical model for us is expositional preaching. So this means even if I'm doing a series you know, on relationships or I'm doing a series on parenting or whatever it is, each sermon has a text that I am doing an exposition of. You begin with a text, whatever your text is, and the first thing you want to do with your text as you're, you know, praying through it, trying to understand it, is determine what the big idea is. What's the main point? If you had to preach, this is usually how I sort of arrive at this. If I had to preach a one-point sermon on this text, what would my one point be? And that kind of gives you the central idea or the big idea of that text. And then once you have that big idea from the text— support it. Why is that the big idea? What are the two, three, or four things from the text that relate to that big idea, that explain that big idea, etc.? And now you've got those three or four things is what we would call an exegetical outline, which is basically the construction, the organization, interpretively, of a text. And then what you want to do, Jared and others listening, is from the exegetical outline— compose what's called a homiletical outline, which is those are now your preaching points. One problem that we see, don't we, Ross, is guys who they don't do this translation mm-hmm. work from exegetical to homiletical, and they their preaching points are their exegetical yeah. outline. So they'll get up and say, and they'll say something like, my first point is Pharaoh's hardened heart. Like, yeah. Well, that's not a point. That's, yeah. that's a subhead. That's a topic. Yeah. That's something I can see that you put down as— It's a fact. It's, it's a there. fact. Yeah. What about his hardened heart? Yeah. And even more deep, what does that tell us about hardened hearts? So use Pharaoh's hardened heart, that plot point in the passage, as your example and your exposition. But tell us something about hardened hearts. Like, even if it's as simple as it's possible to harden your heart. Like, that's a point, right? It may not be the best point. You may be able to say that better, but it's at least proclaiming something, declaring something. That's a place where a lot of folks get hung up. Now you've got your homiletical outline, and of course, you want to come up with in midst of your exposition, good ways to contextualize that, mm-hmm. which is wh- how does this apply to these people, to this place, to what's going on in our community, mm-hmm. in our church, et cetera. Illustrate, give people a, a chance to rest as they're working through and visualize. You're making it visual is what an illustration yeah. essentially does. And application, how does this apply? It's, it's, it's another form of contextualization in some ways. How do we apply this text? What, what are my takeaways here? There's a million different ways now you can organize yeah. all of that, and maybe you can speak to some of that. But that's the basic yeah. blueprint for just preparing the sermon. Two practical things. I'm a big fan of writing an entire manuscript. Um, okay. You don't have to necessarily take that into the pulpit with you. I think we recently I found out that H.B. Charles writes a whole manuscript, but then doesn't actually take the whole manuscript <laughs> right, in. in. But the, he wants that prepared yeah. beforehand. But I, I think a whole manuscript, don't think that, oh, if I write a whole manuscript, it means the Spirit's not in it. No, he he's in it in that writing right there and then. And the Holy Spirit will also be in it when you preach it. So I'm a big believer of writing a whole manuscript. I also do something, I don't know if you do this, but I read usually, this is my usual practice, this is not necessarily every sermon, but I will read my entire sermon out to my wife before I preach it. 
So it's usually the night before the day or on the Friday or something like that, especially if it's a, a tricky subject or something that I've had to really ponder over or it's a different audience. So when I do pulpit supply, I will often read that. Now that means my wife has it twice because she'll hear it first. But I have found that it's not necessarily that I'm asking my wife to critique it, but there's two things happening. Number one, I trust her and I trust that she knows what I'm trying to say. So she'll often say, I I don't think that joke works well there, or I don't think that illustration really does what you think it's meant to do. So I trust her opinion. So I will make edits based on that. But second, it's also just reading aloud to somebody. So I will often read a paragraph out and go, hang on, and I'll change the paragraph even as I'm reading it to my wife. And to some extent, she knows her task, which is to sit and listen and to understand that sometimes I'm just, I need it out. I need to hear the words coming out of my mouth to feel if that's actually going to work right. right. Um, So I guess two practical things, write and read out loud. That's how I prepare. And I would do pretty much everything you've, you've said and then just two practicals, write and read out loud. Yeah. I mean, there's a million things we could say. Of course. We could do yeah. a whole episode on this, but that's probably good for a mailbag. Jared, I hope you found that helpful. This comes from Mitchell on Facebook. People still use Facebook, by the way. I still use Facebook for things like this. Yeah. I mean, here's Mitchell on Facebook asking, how high of a priority is it for a pastor, lead or associate, to be able to work in the original languages? Ooh. I may get fired. I may get fired for saying this as well. (laughs) I don't think it should be that high of a priority. Yep, that's exactly where I am. So, and I know people that would really disagree with us. Yeah, especially maybe even across the hall from me. (laughs) (laughs) Across the hall from my office. Yeah. Yeah, no, look, I I think where it can be a high priority for those who know the original languages, I think more of that is sort of under the hood Mm -hmm. than it is on the road, so to speak. Like. In your personal study, I, I've heard someone say, and I don't know who it's original to, but reading the scriptures without knowing the original languages is like kissing your bride through a veil. Wow. I, <laughs> I mean, okay. I understand what they're getting at, which is to say when you know the original languages, you're, you're, you're reading the, the word, you're studying the word in the heart language that it was originally yes. inspired in. Yeah. The Holy Spirit breathed out the, you know, the Hebrew and, and the Koine Greek. But that's, I think, resonant in your study for your own heart level. Like, you're not kissing your bride all I'm in public all the time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe a little peck here and there. That's about as much original language stuff as you should be doing in your sermons, probably. <laughs> a little peck here and there. You're not making out with your wife from the pulpit. So I, I want to stop you here. <laughs> I just literally want to stop you here. I, I think this is killer stuff, actually. And I just developed this like on the fly. And you're like, I this can is tell. why you should manuscript. <laughs> no, I, but you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I think, I think it's good to like in your personal study to be engaged in this, but yeah. the guy who's constantly the root of the root of the root yeah. in front of everybody is just, first of all, you have to be really good to come up with anything original, mm-hmm. um, to think that you're going to have an insight that, that the scholars who have translated the Bible into our English translations are. Yeah that they didn't have or that the, the commentaries you're reading didn't have, something like that. So in, in my mind, it's, it's not, I think it's good. I think it can be helpful. I think it could probably be a priority yeah. depending on context probably, but 
high priority, yep. I would say no. That's where I got to. It, it can be a priority, but not highest a priority. A couple of things that are a problem when you make it the highest priority is what you're telling your people in your church. If you don't know these original languages, you can't trust the Bible you're reading. So you've got to be really careful. If you're yeah. making it one of the highest priorities, yeah. you've got to be really careful how you're using it. Number two, as a pastor for... 10 years, I didn't have an amazing grasp on the languages. I used a lexicon, you know, when I needed to. And what I found is the plus is a lot of my sermons felt more real, uh, applicable to the people in the room, less academic. As a negative, I mean, I had to do a lot of study behind the scenes because yeah. it wasn't coming just to the, the forefront of my mind. Now that I have some, specifically I've done Hebrew, I've not done Greek yet. I have found that my study is a bit quicker. I'm able to get to kind of the, the root words a little bit faster. So generally speaking, it's helped my preaching. So I would view it like this. Original languages help you preach well if you do it correctly. If you see it as an academic approach, it will actually hamper your preaching. It will make them academic and you'll be saying to your people, you're not going to grasp this because yeah. I've had to study this to grasp it. So... Yeah, make it a priority. Learn some language. Get get a good kind of use of a lexicon. Just don't make it your highest priority. This comes from Anonymous, who messaged to ask, how would you approach a team of elders who are not healthy? They don't acknowledge when they have messed up. Some are not involved in any ministry in the church. Now, there were some other contextual details that I'm leaving out because there would be a little somewhat identifying my impression well, not my impression. What's communicated to me is this is a not just a theoretical, <laughs> hypothetical question, but something occurring currently that Anonymous would like some advice on. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just going to assume for the sake of the question that the team of elders actually isn't healthy. Mm -hmm. I know sometimes we have questions or concerns that maybe I'm not trying to adjudicate what, what the situation is. They don't acknowledge when they have messed up. Sometimes we say that about people who actually haven't messed up, but we yeah. think they did. Like, I'm not adjudicating that. I'm just going to assume, assume they are. Unhealthy. They messed up, or there's something. They're, it's a disordered, dysfunctional, unhealthy, unbiblical team of elders. Some are not involved in any ministry in the church. That's a little concerning. That's a little more specific. Yep. And the one thing I don't know, Ross, is the polity. Mm. I must. I, I'm going just assume because of our context that this is a congregational yep. church, a Baptist church that operates congregationally. Because if you don't have that, you have different yep. lanes of recourse. The first thing is, here's what not to do. If you think the elders are not qualified, which is really what the question yeah. is, are, are, the, are these elders who are qualified for ministry? If you think one or more of the elders are disqualified for ministry, you don't then bring that up in every small group meeting or with groups of friends, right? Like, I'm not saying you would never have this conversation, but that's not the first way of addressing this. The first way of addressing this is actually directly to the elders. Mm. Now, he's saying they don't acknowledge when they've messed up. I'm going to assume that he has brought up some of these concerns. Hey, pastor so-and-so and pastor so-and-so, they don't really do anything here. They mm -hmm. just show up to elders meetings or w whatever it is, whatever the, the charge of disqualification is. You need to, uh, scripturally, you know, if they're not receiving this, you have a congregational recourse. Yeah, That's not the first you know, first resort, but it is at least second or third. And you're not supposed to bring a charge against another elder without a witness. So you do need to have someone who is in agreement with you doing this in a non-gossipy way, but someone that you know who is uh, in agreement, and you bring that to the elders mm. if because 
sober-minded people go, oh, this is not just one guy. This is multiple people who have this concern. That should make us go, we need to listen to this. If they still cannot acknowledge when they have messed up, well, you've got church meetings. You have your membership meeting. And speaking as a pastor, this is the, the venue for if someone is charging me with sin or charging the elder board with sin and we're not agreeing to it, what you need to do is raise this issue in the church meeting so it can be adjudicated by the congregation. That's what the congregation is there for, in part, is to hold the keys. Mm. They will have to determine the merits and the demerits of the the offense, the defense, you know, the prosecution, the defense, all those sorts of things. But the congregation should really decide. And I know this is a, a heavy thing to take a lot of nuance out and try to answer in, you know, four minutes or something. But in a Baptist church, it's the congregation who determines whether a team of elders is healthy or not. And if the congregation cannot do that, and you are still convinced, Anonymous, this church is not being led by people who are qualified, but the congregation is not willing to determine that, the answer is not to stick around for a long time and stir up trouble. But, I mean, it's not an ordered church. So perhaps, and I don't say this lightly, it could be that you need to find another church that is operating healthily. Anything to yeah, add so there? Yeah, that's pretty much what, what I had. The, the caveats I would put on is, is number one, when we often look at our elders and, and we want to question them, let's just say you're in this questioning mood right now. Make sure that you're being an example. Make sure that you couldn't be accused of something similar. So, you know, you say here, some are not involved in any ministry in the church. Just make sure that that you're not sitting there going, well, I'm always involved. I'm always there. And actually, when you think about it, you're actually not. <laughs> Do you know? So, so just be careful that as you come to bring an accusation, it's not something that you could be accused of first yourself. I think that's really important because what you want to be saying is in that meeting, I, I think this is biblical. These are things that we should be looking at. And you're not trying to say, and I model them. What you're trying to yeah. say is, I know that they're not going to be able to sling any mud at me on this matter. And biblical is really important. Yes. Not to cut you off, but like when you bring a charge, it, sh- it should be to say, like if you're charging an elder with being disqualified, you yeah. should have Bible verses. Oh, yeah. Here's what the scriptures say, and here's how their yeah. behavior or conduct is not in accordance yeah. with this. It can't just be like, no. I feel this way. No. Or and I, it can't yeah. be Gene said and Bob saw. It needs to right. be, you know, we have evidence. The second kind of caveat I would give is just be aware of elder involvement behind the scenes. Yeah. So this is something I know in our church that, that you know, just in a season of difficulty that we had, you know, the elders were, were doing a lot of work behind the scenes that didn't really come to the front necessarily. So I, I do want to just encourage you, do try to think of your elders in the best light possible. Could there be things happening that you're just unaware of? Do you know, is the one that's not involved in a lot of ministry in church actually visiting a lot of people behind the scenes and you're unaware of it? Have they actually taken a season with other elders and saying, I can't be at the forefront really busy because actually behind the scenes I'm struggling with ill health or whatever. Right. You know, so just think of them the best way. So again, what I definitely do is, yes, the end element might be in a church members meeting bringing this up but do make sure you're having those conversations with the elders before because what you might find is actually there is other things going on and you're just completely unaware of it and and actually your accusation that you're bringing isn't actually an accusation that's that's well founded assuming you've done all those things assuming you are thinking the best and it's still not there then i think you have two two courses of action you raise it, you pray for change. And if it doesn't come, then yes, it might be time to leave a church. And 
you don't leave in a big bomb. Yeah. You just go, hey, I raised it. It's clearly something you don't feel the same way. I don't think I can sit under you as an elder board. So I'll, I'll be going to another church. And when you go to that other church, you're not spreading rumors. You're saying, you know, I, I wasn't convinced the direction the church was going on with the elder team that they have. But now I'm focused on this church. Hey, yeah. what do you believe? So, so be careful not to become, become someone that just creates a big bomb out of this whole situation. It's good. This comes from Linda on Facebook. Linda wants to know, and another question that could get us fired after the languages, <laughs> is it ever okay to sprinkle rather than dunk? And she's not talking about donuts. <laughs> our, our church is in a prison unit, and on the rare occasion, we'll have someone who's in segregation and just can't be dunked. <laughs> We're going to say immersed here. Yes. They can't be immersed for baptism, but they are a believer and asked to be baptized. Is it ever mm. okay to sprinkle rather than to immerse? So there are other situations. <laughs> this is a very unique situation. It is. But I can also think of individuals with disabilities. I can think of people with that are older. Let me ask you this question. <laughs> Have you ever, to your knowledge, sprinkled someone rather than fully immersed? I have never done that. Okay. I've never done it. Have you done it? No. Okay. <laughs> but I have been present when it has, and okay. it was for, I believe, good reasons. Okay. So I'm going to say- Someone's allergic to water or something? Well, no. I'm going to say, yes, it's okay. Yeah. Well, but I'm going to give a lot of different- It depends on what okay means. Yes. If, if you're just asking, like, is it ever allowable or permissible, I, I would say hesitatingly, yes. Mm-hmm. We we would like in our context we would just call it an irregular baptism, yes. but we wouldn't it's say still a baptism. Yeah, and and usually what we're thinking of is places where maybe there's not a lot of access to water, right? Hmm. You're thinking of like certain missional contexts or others where maybe it's just not, you know, they don't have access to this, and this would be an an instance of that. They don't have access to immersion. Now I want to genuinely know this isn't just like oh it's a huge inconvenience, yeah. but if it's just like we we can't. They won't let us do this. Yeah. The prison won't allow us to do this. And given if someone's going to be there a long time or whatever yeah. it is, okay, it's irregular. It's not ideal. It's not normative. We'd say it's irregular, but okay, permissible. Yeah. So a thought that's not the situation and a thought that is on the situation. I have seen a baptism that was an older lady who was in her 80s that was fully immersed. She was yeah. She was not frail. She had, you know, I've, I've done it. You know, and but you you worry when yeah. you are doing it. But I've also seen a baptism where someone was in her late eighties, quite frail. And so what they did was they filled the tank right to its absolute brim. They sat her in a seat within the tank, and she was up to about her shoulders. Yeah. And again, pretty frail. And so instead of of lowering her down, they basically got the biggest bucket they could find and poured water, and over. Poured water over it. And so in a, you know a second, she really was kind of fully immersed with the amount of water that was going <laughs> over it. Now we're talking about physics. Yeah. Here. Like, where's the but, water spatially? Yeah. But there was this reality <laughs> where, again, not necessarily usual, but everybody knew the intent. We're doing everything yeah. we possibly can to get to fully immersed as possible. So in that situation, I was completely content. In this situation, I'm wanting to ask a couple of questions and, and for our listener, you'll be able to figure this out. How long are they going to be in segregation? <laughs> okay. are, do you just need to say, be patient? We, we will absolutely do this, but but you need to be out of segregation. If it's going to be a month, a month's not a big yeah, I deal. I didn't know what this meant. They just said, just can't be. Just can't be. I assume that you know, the situation in prison is yeah. that they can't. Yeah. Now, if they can't be, you, uh, this would be my advice. 
go to the largest amount of body of water that you can do. <laughs> okay. Do you know? So you're not talking, you know, a finger in a cup and then put a little bit of water on their head. If you are allowed to use a whole bucket, use a whole bucket. Oh, you know? I see. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to the, yeah. go to the maximum amount of water that you can go to because what we're seeing is the intent is to be fully immersed. We're trying yeah. to get to that. The Lord is indeed gracious and he will understand in that sense. But if your intent is... Well, we could use a big bucket, but it's that's just, just going to make a mess. And, well, yeah. Yeah. But what this individual seems to be saying is the intent is to be fully baptized, fully immersed, but there is some practical reason why that's not possible. If you can't wait, you know, it, you know, this person's in segregation for 10 years, whatever, if, you, if there's a reason that they can't wait, go to the, the very best next thing. But if you can wait and there is a proper way of waiting for it, then do that. In the instance of the older lady that, that I was present that she was being baptized, she was desperate to be baptized. She had just come to the Lord. She knew her days were numbered and she was convinced by it. The pastors didn't even question the idea that she couldn't be immersed. Therefore, she shouldn't be baptized. It was just, how do we lovingly help her do this? Yeah. And in the end, no one walked out of that room going, tisk, 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 we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> it was a beautiful moment because actually we understood even in her frailty, we're doing this. We're yeah. doing this to the best I can. So for, for this question, I would say, if you can wait for a better time, go for that. If you can't, go to the largest body of water you can use. Yeah, I do know, again, I'm just assuming, I'm not trying to adjudicate the question. I'm just assuming from Linda that she has exhausted every resource. Mm -hmm. I, I know that in some prisons, they do take seriously the religious affiliation yeah. of, of their inmates and it could be that, like, just because you don't have access readily, that if you said, hey, like, we're pretty staunch Baptists, and could we have an allowance to be able to immerse in a, a kiddie pool or yeah. something that they would make some allowance? They Most, you know, prisons that I'm aware of are people who do prison ministry. Obviously, they're just things that you can't and, and can't do because of, you know, the incarceration and the nature of that. But they do very often take religious affiliation and religious uh, yeah. observance serious. Most folks that I know who, who work in prisons see even, I mean, all religions as a good thing per se for their for inmates. They see it as a positive value, even if even if it's not Christianity, right? So maybe there's the warden or somebody that can be appealed to, a chaplain who may be able to make allowance for this. But if not, yeah, I guess what we're saying is that this is a long-term situation and this is just how it's how it is. There's just immersion just isn't possible. Yeah. Okay. It's permissible. It's irregular, but permissible. Yep. Speaking of full immersion, <laughs> this comes from Sam on Twitter. He says, what to do with church members who stink, as in bad body odor, not stink metaphorically, but they actually have an, a body odor that's significant. He says, you love them, but it's bad. Mm. Obviously, there's some humor in, in this question, but it's also a serious question. Yeah. This is really... An interesting question. I'm really glad they asked. And, yeah. and, and I want to say thank you for asking because I think this has probably come up more oh, often. I think it probably comes up a lot. And I think the fact that we're even able to talk about it now is great. Yeah. I can't, I, I'll, I'll jump in here. Okay. I think you talk to them. Well, I, yeah, I can't think of any, any other any thing. Other thing yeah, because people say, oh, be gracious big, or, you know. a glade and just but spray it around every I, time they come by or <laughs> they'll pick up that hint. I, I think you just talk to them kindly and gently and... and it might be that they're unaware. It might be... It might not be something they can control. It might be something it, they it can control. It could be a body chemistry issue. It might be 
you know, they're actually working 15 hours a day and they don't have time to clean or what, you know, you have no idea. It might, I, I have known a lot of people that struggle with kind of depressive moods that will, will not kind of clean and, and generally not look after themselves. Yeah. So again, I would just talk to them gently and lovingly. And when you do that, one of the things I want to be very clear on, never, never shun them. Yeah. So, oh, I can't invite that person because they might not smell right. You know, it might be something that you just have to suffer. significant enough that he would ask this question. It can't just be, yeah. you know. But that's why you talk to them. Yeah. And, and the likelihood is if you talk to somebody, they're going to change something. Yeah. That's the likelihood. I think if this is about hygiene, as in it's something they can control. Yeah. It's very similar to just someone who has like a very messy or stinky house, which is this is a symptom of a of something some else other is kind probably of disorder. Going on. Emotionally, yep. there's depression or spiritually, there's some issue of disorder. And so you're not so much dealing with the symptom, but using that as the pretense to see what's really going on in their yeah. heart, what's going on in their life. And it could be, as you said, they just work so much and they're not even thinking about this and things have gone unkempt or whatever. But it also could be someone who needs spiritual help mm-hmm. and needs to hear the words of the gospel. And this is just, but if it is someone who it's not something that they can control, there's people whose bodies don't break down certain yeah. minerals or whatever it is. And their body just does this and there's no amount of, you know, deodorant and cologne and everything that, that can mask it. What can you do? You, Love them. You treat them as Jesus would. Mm. Jesus who interacted and touched and got close to people who had a lot more going on than bad body odor, body parts decomposing and open wounds Mm. and different things. And the Lord came near to them. This could be an opportunity to show the love of Christ in, in a significant way. This comes from Logan on Facebook. Logan asks, is there a command for us in Scripture to tithe? Or is it more a virtue ethic of being a cheerful, generous giver? Or is it some mixture of the two? The reference to the tithe is a literal reading of the Old Testament principle of providing 10% of your income. Some people would want me to stress gross income, not, <laughs> not net. They're very strict about that. In any event, it, the biblical principle derived from the Old Testament pattern of providing 10% back to the priest and to the temple system. And some will use the word tithing to say that this is a commandment, that the the literal word for us today is to give 10% of our income back to the church. I don't know about you. I don't see it as a strict command, thou shalt give 10% of your income. I do think it's more of a principle The New Testament teaching is that we are to give not under compulsion, but cheerfully, because God loves a cheerful giver. However, I think 10%, while not a commandment, he asks, is it some mixture of the two? I suppose I'm some mixture of the two. I think 10% is a good rule of thumb. If you fall short of that, I don't think that's the deal breaker with the Lord's favor or you're in in disobedience. But I probably know far far more people who like, I give 10%. I'm doing my duty when they could give more, actually, and that they're not being cheerful even at 10%. So I like the idea of the tithe as just a good rule of thumb. That's what we should all be kind of aiming for. If you can't give 10%, okay. What's important is that you're giving from your heart. You're giving generously. You're giving cheerfully because you Mm -hmm. want to support the work of ministry. If you can do more than 10%, if you can give sacrificially even, 
to do that cheerfully, do that generously as well. But no, I don't think it's a, we need to be dogmatic about the tithe. Yeah. We just had a whole deal on finances. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not, uh, I'm not Christians are commanded now to give a 10th. I do think if there's a tenth in the Old Testament, there was a reason for a tenth sure, in the Old Testament. Right, yeah. And it's I think we can number, yeah. we can take that number and go, I can see in the past that the Lord has commanded this. This might be a good place to, to begin right. or, or to aim for. One thought really on this would be give at the start, not at the end. So okay. when your money comes in. It's right off the top. First thing that you're doing. First thing yeah. you do. The, the first thing that comes out of your bank account is giving to the Lord, giving to the, the saints, giving generously. Often what we'll do is we'll give with whatever's left off at the end of the month. Hey, after all bills this month, this is kind of where I'm at. When actually, if we have the heart posture off, I'm giving to start. Now, what I have found in our personal family, giving a a tithe straight off the back, you know, straight away has really helped us be able to give and also then prioritize how we're then going to use our funds. So we do, as a family, give a tithe. That that is our aim, but we're not doing it out of compulsion or command. We're doing it as a, do you know what? If it's just not there, then it helps us plan out our finances for the rest of the month. Actually, we don't have 100%. We have 90%. Could it be only 85% we could stretch our giving? I really like that Matt and, and Lauren Chandler talked about a generosity column on their budget every mm-hmm. week, that every week on Sunday night, they would say, hey, w- what's the money that we can be generous with this week? Yeah. So it was a regular thing. So I would say it's a mixture of two. I would not personally say the phraseology virtue ethic. <laughs> I, I don't really like the wording of that, but I do like the idea of a principle of 10%. And I would just say, if you can't do it this month at 10%, God's not going to smite you out of this land. But if you can give more, he's still not going to smite you out of this land. But maybe really consider, is the reason you can't give is because you're overspending somewhere? Is the reason that you're not giving more because you're not of generous heart? I think it's more important to have those conversations than whether a tithe is right or not. Yeah, the percentage is not as important as the The fullness of your heart. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. big percentage of your heart there. And finally, this comes from Andrew on Twitter. A couple of questions that I think kind of go together, and I found them really interesting because they somewhat apply to our they, they basically our situation, our situation at Liberty Baptist Church. Church. Yeah. I don't know if that's why he's asking because he thinks that we we know from this experience. In any event, Andrew says, in churches with multiple pastors that have a teaching pastor, I'm assuming this means someone who is the main preacher. How does a leadership practically model a biblical understanding that one of the primary responsibilities of all pastors is to teach? Referring, of course, to the biblical qualification passages, 1 Timothy 3 in particular, that elders, overseers, pastors must be able to teach. So this first question is essentially, if you have a teaching pastor, how do you model that all of the pastors must be able to teach? I think this is fairly easy. Okay. Which is? Let them preach and teach. <laughs> so, well, okay. so if you boil it down, I, I don't yeah, think this is about percentages. Yeah. So you're taking on the vast bulk of preaching at Liberty, but you're not yeah. going to preach all of the sermons. No, that's uh, true. I think you're doing 75%, something in that something region, like maybe that. that. So the other 25%, all the guys are going to get an opportunity. Let yeah. them teach in Sunday school, equipping groups, Wednesday nights. Just let them preach and teach in all those areas. Don't become a silo. I preach 52 sermons a year at 52 s- services a year. Yeah. Avoid that. Well, only nut jobs want to do that anyway. Uh, <laughs> I did that for two years. And I did 48. Or four, yeah, I was there about. So, and it was not fun. I didn't want to. Worst year I did was. 
<laughs> every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. Ooh, 104 sermons. I was just silly. It's not good advice. So yeah, my simple thing is you model it by saying we will not let one guy preach everything. In fact, we have put it in place the maximum he will yeah. preach 75%. Yeah. I, I think there's also other venues. Like one of the things that our guys have expressed as we've moved to this model, and we used to have, essentially we had a lead pastor, and this is kind of going to lead into his second question, but we had a lead pastor who did most of the preaching. And then we had we had other pastors and the the other pastors would you know, preach and teach, I guess, occasionally. And then over the last two years, we have moved since the exit of our uh, lead pastor, we've moved to more of a team preaching model where almost every week, you know, six, eight weeks in a row, there's a different preacher in the mm. pulpit. And we've just kind of been rotating through. But as we've now moved back to not a lead pastor, but just a teaching pastor type role, which is the role that I'm um, filling, one of the things that the guys are saying is, oh, we'll actually ha- be able to teach in equipping groups yes. more something they've been really desiring to do. Equipping groups are basically our version of Sunday school. So the Sunday morning classes or just other venues. So it's not just the pulpit, but you've got elders. Let them be teaching Sunday school classes, leading small groups. Youth ministry. Student ministry. I think there's maybe an expansion of our our concept of what it means able to teach. Mm -hmm. So I, I recall trying to bring qualified men onto eldership at my previous church. And I would have guys say to me, like, I, I don't want to deliver a sermon. And I would say, look, I think you can grow in that area. But my reading of being able to teach is, do you know the Bible well? Mm. Can you defend the truths mm-hmm. and refute false teaching, which is something that elders must be qualified to do? Yeah. Can you clearly communicate the truths of Scripture to someone who wants to know more about the Bible? Yep. And that might mean over you know, discipleship encounters yeah. over a coffee shop. You don't have to ha- be the kind of person who stands up in front of everybody, yeah. whether a class or a congregation, and deliver a lesson or a lecture or a sermon. You just need to be able to know the Word and communicate it mm-hmm. clearly, able to teach the Word to someone. Yep. And so I think if you have a more flexible view of what that means, obviously you don't open up to mean anything, but mm-hmm. if you have a more flexible view, then I think more— it, it might even actually open up people's consideration of who's yeah. qualified to be an elder uh, or not. Yeah. If it's not like they got to be able to preach yeah. on a Sunday morning, you might actually find that there are more men, <laughs> character-wise, you know, spiritually, yeah. who are qualified for this. And your teaching office. pastor will be happy as well because he doesn't actually want to do every sermon. Like he may say <laughs> it out right, loud, right. "Oh, yeah, I'll yeah. do it all," but yeah. but he doesn't want to. And actually, that's just a kind of red flag in a church that you only have one guy that's going to do it. I'm not saying that yeah, this yeah. is what this guy's saying, but right, right. that's what we want to avoid. That one guy does everything. I did the it voice, yeah, uh, uh, badly in one of the churches I served. And I've, I've learned from that mistake. You don't want to be the single teaching voice, which means actually let the teaching pastor go through his calendar and say, actually, I want to go away with my family that weekend. And I think a wee mini series here in the summer would be great for the, the other elders to take on board. Just get a bit creative with it. Yeah. So the second part, or, or Andrew's second question, which I, I think is somewhat related, he says, how can an eldership shepherd a congregation from a lead or senior pastor plus associates model, so lead or senior pastor model, to multiple pastors with no lead pastor slash senior pastor in a context where most members have only known the former model. And this is exactly the situation at Liberty Baptist Church. But I don't know that I've got pointers because we weren't really trying to do this. It wasn't our desire to move to this, at least not initially. 
we were trying to replace our lead pastor. And what happened was our search took longer than any of us wanted. And the longer the search went on, the more our people kind of became accustomed. Yeah. I think that helped when we decided to let, to suggest the non-lead pastor model. We're just going to have a shared, like true parity, true plurality, and we'll have mm-hmm. a teaching. They don't, like my title's not teaching pastor. It's just staff pastor or associate pastor, like the other associate pastors. My main role is preaching. So I guess informally the preaching pastor. But that kind of came about yeah. just because we had been in rotation for a long time and people kept coming to the church. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really. Any pointers? Like, yeah, how, I don't how would really you actually have... intentionally lead someone towards this? So I don't have any pointers on how to do it. I have, I guess, some things to be aware on the journey of certain certain okay. things that may come up. That's good. And I think they have, to some extent, come up at liberty and they've had to be addressed through that time. So, so number one, be aware of communication. People are used to one voice standing up at X yep. meeting, X you know, Sunday service, and that's the voice that you kind of walk behind, follow. When you move away from the single voice, well, all these voices get to speak at the same level. So just be aware of how that's communicated. The emails might need to include all the pastors in it. It might need to be from the pastors if it's an email. If it's a members meeting, all the pastors might need to be present or they might not all be present. Work your way through how are you going to communicate everyday church life to the church and with the church? Who should they email? All the pastors, some of the pastors. So work out that communication as you move to that model because people will be worried. Who should I talk to? Where do I bring this issue to? I have an issue. Who should I speak to? That's confusing. That pastor said that, but that said that. So get your communication really signed, sealed, delivered. You know, you're really on that. Second, I would say pastoral visitation can get a little bit confusing. Who should I go to if I have a problem and I want to sit down with somebody? Which pastors visit which people? Uh, is it grab bag everyone can visit whoever it can just get a little bit confusing so again just work out a model for that again your church members are going to be thinking and I'm not saying rightly or wrongly but selfishly hang on I used to meet with that pastor that's who I talked to now what do I do clear that out okay this is how we're going to do things these three pastors are going to concentrate on pastoral visitation if you have any issues go to them you're working out those pathways and then I think the third thing that I think if we look over the last couple of years that, that we've had is that when issues come up and, and when negative conversations come up, or even if it's not negative, it's just a positive question, we want our pastors not to be just flying off the handle. We want them to be able to talk with one voice. So also as a church, be aware that they might turn around and say, the pastors need to discuss this, we'll get back to you. Right. And I think that's something that's a little bit different. When you have a lead voice, they can sometimes just, just kind of go for it. Just fly off the cuff. Let's, let, <laughs> right. uh, I think we should do this. Yeah. Uh, where I think if you're going for that kind of multi-pastor uh, model, no lead, they're going to need time to talk about things so they're with one voice. So for me, how can you shepherd your congregation? Keep those three things in mind. If you can handle those three things, your church are going to be more likely to be supportive because their fears are are kind of being dealt with. And I'm not saying you massage their issues. I'm saying you're just trying to help them move yeah. towards this. I think in the last couple of years at Liberty, we've, we've kind of had those three issues kind of pop up at different yeah. times and at different times they've handled been handled well and not handled well. And just after the couple of years, we've kind of got to that stage where actually these issues are either resolved or being resolved, which has then helped the model to, to, to work out. Yeah, I think, I mean, the benefit that we had was without intention for two years, all the pastors have had to 
play their role. We've had multiple guys preaching through. And so people over two years, I think early on, people were somewhat concerned about it. But over two years, folks were kind of like, well, the church didn't implode. Mm -hmm. Things are getting done. The emails are going out. People are getting pastored. The sermons are getting, et cetera. Okay, I guess this works. And the church continued to grow. People kept coming to the church. So I guess this works. So they just sort of through experience. I'm assuming from the question, maybe I shouldn't, but I'm assuming from the question that sort of like we have this senior pastor mm-hmm. model, maybe even a senior pastor in place, and we're wanting to lead, you know, move towards this intentionally. And some of the things you brought up would be is, is the sort of thing that people will bring up is, yeah. first of all, who does what? So I think in in the strategy working towards this, no lead pastor, you need to have clear roles defined. So even if you don't have, like he says, associates, so if, if, if you don't have like associate pastor for youth yeah. or associate pastor for whatever, somehow make clear who's over what area. Yeah. So when someone has a question about those things, we've, we've done this at, at Liberty. It's fairly new, so I don't know there's total clarity with the entire congregation, but you go to our website, and when you look at the elders and even the deacons— you see under each elder the kind of area that they have oversight for. So if someone has a question, I have a question about the personnel committee or staffing or hiring or whatever. Do I just send this to all the pastors? Yeah. Well, you could do that, or you could look and see, oh, Pastor Tyler is actually the representative for the personnel committee. I'll talk to him. Or whatever it is. Having that clarity, I think, mm-hmm. is important. But the one, you know, another question that comes up is just who's in charge? Yeah. Right? So who's overseeing the staff? Who's the one that people report to. And this has come up, and we haven't always known how to exactly to answer it because our idea sort of is that Pastor Bobby is in this role now. He's yeah. an associate pastor, that he's sort of overseeing the staff. But then we have Pastor Paul, who yeah. is on staff. Does Pastor Bobby oversee Pastor Paul, yeah. even though Pastor Bobby's not a lead pastor? Yeah. Like, well, how does that work? Yeah. You know? And you've got to think through those things. And what we've we've essentially answered the question when they say who's in charge. We'll say, well, Bobby is generally in charge of the support staff or, yep. or the non-pastor staff. The elders together are in, in charge of the pastoral staff. Yep. They report to us, yep. you know, to the board or to the team. We hold them accountable. Ultimately, we're all in submission to you, question yep. asker. The congregation is yep. in charge of all of us. So something's not working. Mm-hmm. If there's something that, you know, maybe not, you know, disciplined in a punitive way or there's something, you know, somebody sinned, but just we need correction in this mm-hmm. area. We're not doing well. We're trusting the congregation to go, hey, yeah. you know, the financial statements didn't go out on time. And like, yes. oh, well, we need to, you know. So we're all keeping each other in check in those mm-hmm. in those regards. But certainly not an easy thing to do, no. but with intentionality, with some patience, with a lot of communication mm-hmm. and clarity. You can get there. And neither one of us would say every church has to do this. No. We don't see in the scriptures the requirement for a lead pastor. That's not really even a yeah. biblical category. But there's nothing wrong with there's that. Wrong if that's with the model you have, yeah. I think it's okay to have that model. Yeah. But if you want to work towards, you know, parity without those sort of hierarchical titles, mm-hmm. yeah, some pointers, I guess. Yeah. yeah. All right. I think we did okay. Man, we almost hit an hour we, on the mailbag. Have we ever gone over an hour? Um. Maybe I don't know if we, we could do it today. You want to keep going for a second? No, okay. <laughs> no, I'm good. We'll finish. Up. We'll finish before I know. If you enjoy the podcast, dear listener, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast. 
hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.